Hello, my name is Michelle O'Brien, and I will be having a conversation with Yana Kalu for the New York City Trans Oral History Project in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is March 1st, 2017, and this has been recorded at the NYU Department of Sociology. Hello. Hi. Uh, so, tell me uh, about your growing up. Sure. So, um, I grew up kind of all over the place. My dad um, is um, from a small town in Louisiana, New Iberia, um, and is white. And my mother is from Brazil, um, from Minas Gerais. And um, my mother came to the U.S. on a scholarship to study psychology, and my parents both met in graduate school uh, in Michigan uh, in the psychology department and then uh, got married and so I grew up I was born uh, in New Hampshire they lived in a little uh, farm in rural Maine and then we ended up um, moving all over up and down the East Coast as they sort of figured out where they wanted to be and then we we moved to Brazil when I was four so between the years of like four and almost eight I lived in Brazil um, where my mother's family's from she's the only person who came to the U.S. And then as it was time for me to start going to school, I was homeschooled for the first couple of years, then we moved back to the U.S. and the rest of the time. Well, um, but I've lived, I've lived here, um, and most places that I have, most places that I have lived um, have been Utah and, um, uh, Utah and, yeah, I can give you my list. It's pretty, it's pretty erratic. <laughs> what led them to move around? When we... Um, we wanted to go back to Brazil. My dad wanted to write a book and my mother wanted us to be around our family and wanted to have us growing up speaking both languages and knowing both, um, both of the places that we were from. Um, and then to move back, I think it was, it was really about schooling and wanting us to go to school in the U.S. Um, but then my parents were really looking for, um, intentional communities and kind of their own utopia in which to raise... Um, their kids, it's myself and I have a, a, a sister who's four years younger, uh, in a sort of, they were really frustrated with um, conservatism, capitalism, and were really kind of off the beaten path. They had both kind of since issued behavioral psychology in which they were trained and were really looking for more spiritual, intentional communities. And so we ended up like living in a car for a little while and living with my dad's relatives and hopping around from like like strange cult to like totally lovely little community to totally and so we were all over the place um until we finally settled for a little while in in uh, Chapel Hill North Carolina and then another year in Pueblo Colorado and then and then quite and finally in um in southern Utah when my dad got a job working for the federal government for Indian Health Services as a psychologist to um, to several Ute and Paiute reservations that were kind of in the Four Corners area. Do you remember any of these intentional communities or know much about them that your parents encountered? You know, I've done a little bit of research about, mm -hmm. about a few of them. We were in, um, in South Carolina for a while at the Meher Baba Center that I've read a small amount about. We were in um, a couple of different... Um, um, Quaker communities, friends communities in, in Asheville, um, North Carolina. Um, there were a couple in Ohio that I know we spent short amounts of time at that I know nothing about. Um, and uh, 
but they were all they were all a little bit short-lived you know we were pretty like nomadic I think my my dad was really both of my parents and my dad especially were really having a lot of kind of their own sort of like spiritual awakenings and understandings and looking for a community that was already formed but also really I think actually he wanted to like lead his own and have his own so like nothing was like quite right and so we would leave so that's my under that's you know my adult understanding of of why, why those didn't work out at this point but we ended up um you know not we ended up totally not spending uh you know a, a quite three maybe two or three years of searching and in these spaces and then when my folks like finally settled down it was not an intentional community so that sort of didn't pan out for for them so tell me about utah um, so I arrived in Utah, um, I believe I was maybe in sixth, sixth grade at the time, um, fifth or sixth grade, and it was interesting, we, um, we didn't know what, what my, my folks and, and, and I, um, didn't know, um, what Mormons were, we knew nothing about the, the LDS faith when we moved there, and my mother, my mother, um, took care of us and didn't work outside of the home, and my dad, um, was working on on a couple of reservations, and so they sort of didn't have much interaction with um, the very predominant, you know, something like 80% Mormon in this small southern Utah town that we lived right outside of. The town was called St. George. We lived in a little tiny community, maybe 30 minutes outside of that, called Kayenta. And so my sister and I both kind of interfaced with this pretty intensely in, in public school, and, you know, I remember saying something like, there we were making gingerbread houses for Christmas and some kid brought in a huge bag of candy and I was like, oh my God, you know, and, and then most of the students wouldn't speak with me after this because I, and we had to have a meeting with like my mom and, and the teacher at the time to explain that I had said something so religiously offensive by taking the Lord's name in vain. And so, you know, a couple of the kids were like, you said, oh, my dog backwards, I can't talk to you, my parents, like, that's not. So I had, like, sworn, you know, worse than anything at all. And so that was, like, the rest of that year when I came in in the middle. And then I, you know, sort of, like, understood, like, that was kind of, like, the cultural, like, acclimation that happened. Um, But I was, um, you know, it was a, after living in Brazil and after living, um, you know, up and down the East Coast and with parents that were, like, you know, on the, you know, bordering radical, it was a pretty, um, it was pretty shocking. And so um, I ended up really not having a whole lot of Mormon friends, but certainly as I grew up, um, came out, and a lot of these things ended up having a lot of um, friends who had grown up Mormon and had left the church for being queer for various reasons. And so uh, I ended up having a lot of contact. I ended up you know, having a girlfriend in my 20s whose dad was a Mormon bishop. And um, so I feel like I learned, I ended up learning a lot about the church, but was certainly went through a lot of processes of friends trying to invite me to church or, um, you know, they were very active in, in terms of like proselytizing and converting. And so there was a lot of, resistance on my part and also my parents' part where they were just like, you can totally hang out with this person, but there was no way that you were going to church with them. But that definitely took a social toll at the, you know, at the, right when we arrived. So, but I, I think very quickly, you know, entering junior high, I very much defined myself with like the other like bad kids that were like, you know, 
So the counterculture, I think, is also one that's very much like in reaction to you. And I wasn't resisting as much as like as if I'd grown up, but I was like, I made it, I think, really clear just like even like like through like what I would like decide to say and where that I was like, no, that's, you know, this is not this is not my uh, culture or faith tradition. What was your relationship with your parents like and your family? Um, at this, around this time, 12 or so, it ended up being, being really difficult. Um, mm, I'm wondering how much I feel like sh- sharing because it was pretty rocky, but, um, um, my parents were pretty like, they were, it was a pretty like volatile household and, um, think there were a lot of tensions with um my mother's not a citizen but could live here legally because she was married to my dad but also had had not did her degree in the U.S. but had never worked and so there was a lot of like in if we're going to break up this family which was always a question like how that is going to work um and and um my my father and my sister both type 1 diabetics and so they were getting finally had health insurance through this federal government position that my dad held and um, things were quite rocky and there was some, you know, questions about like, you know, if, if like, if we are really open about things that are happening in the house, like, is this person, is my dad going to lose his job? And like, will my sister and he have health care? And so there were a lot of like, um, there were, I definitely had like teachers and neighbors that were concerned about what was happening in my home growing up and, um, a couple of times, you know, police called to my school, um, and so it was quite it was quite challenging at this at this point. But I, I think you know, my mom and I have always maintained some closeness, and my father and I have done so as well. So it was just a a pretty intense combination of forces. I think with like two psychologists and you know people who maybe you know we're not getting along and then also just not yeah not not really uh knowing what to do with a with a kid who's like not uh not really accepting of of some of the stuff that that was being put on me so yeah is there more you'd like to share about that dynamic or yourself as a teenager um I suppose I will say I, you know, I ended up being kicked out of a few high schools in Southern Utah. Um, really, really simple things from skipping school, which is the only time that my parent I could really get away from my parents or have social time. They were really, really strict, and so I would, you know, skipping school, and then one school would say, you know, Yana hasn't come enough, and so I would get in trouble then, and then I would go to the next school. One school they found. Um, some weed and a pipe in my locker, so I was kicked out of that school. I ended up going to the alternative high school in the area, um, which I really loved. Um, it was like, I could, like, smoke cigarettes and, like, go to weaving class and take pottery class, and it was, like, really, you know, it was, like, reading beat poets in the English class and, like, having a really, really great time, but I think my parents were concerned about me and the things were escalating in the, in the home just in terms of, um, in terms of, like, emotional and physical um, abuse. And so they ended up being in the financial position to send me to a, a boarding school. Um, when I was, I think I had just turned 15, um, in central Utah, which is about four hours, four or five hours away from them. Um, and then I actually never, I had like different teachers or 
friends' parents that I would, like, go to for, like, summers. I got summer jobs, so I lived with two friends' parents my junior and senior year. I never went home for, like, Christmas. I had a spring break where a teacher let me go camping and backpacking with his family, so just other other friends, families, and teachers kind of took care of me, and I don't think I went. I graduated when I was 16. I'd skipped a couple of grades through being homeschooled in Brazil, and so I ended up um, graduating young, and um, I moved to, um, I was still, I could only afford in-state tuition, and I was, you know, estranged-ish. My folks were paying for my tuition at this boarding school, but we were not communicating well, and so the only place that I was like I can afford in-state tuition was to move to Salt Lake City, Utah, which was like three hours away from this central Utah boarding school that I had been living in. It was like a town of like, it was like 800 people. It was like sheeps, turkeys. It was like this like hyper rural kind of bad kid, but also like rigorously academic school where like we were like locked in at 7 p.m. and we were drug tested, but we also like went to class. So it was this pretty like, you know, like intense environment around like turkey processing plants and sheep it was like that was like the industry of this tiny town and then and then I moved to um when I graduated I moved to Salt Lake City Utah to go to the state school the University of Utah where I could afford in state tuition so I very much wanted to leave Utah at this point um but Salt Lake City was also like totally the big city after the places that I'd been and I wanted to be there and that's where I could afford so I I went there um for my undergrad and and I um started taking gender studies and and history courses and sort of decided that this is this is what I wanted to, to do um, but at the time it was you know it was because I was like paying for this it was totally a a mess in terms of I was like going part-time and then I worked like graveyard shifts at the hospital the university hospital food service like checking all of the trays um, and doing dishes and then I would like get up and you know I'd like take a bus or like walk home at 4.30 in the morning, like, super far, and then, like, <laughs> try to go to school. Um, and that was really not not working out super well um, in terms of, in terms of like, my schooling and in terms of, like, wanting to leave Utah. But I, I it was where I started, I think, finding queer people for the first time and then also this kind of, like, story of my life that a lot of these, like, you know, in high school and then in college, ha- having a couple of professors that really took an interest in in me and I was after I had no longer been able to do these graveyard shifts at the at the hospital I was working as a cashier at the, at the at a grocery store which was in a neighborhood near the university and so a couple of my professors lived in that area and they would like see me and like come through my checkout line at the grocery store and um, I had this this uh, professor who I'd actually I think I'd only taken one of her classes and she was like she was like, you're doing really well in my class. Like, what's your plan? And I said, well, I just take one or two classes at a time because I work full time here. And she was like, you need to be in school. This is unacceptable. Absolutely not. There's a scholarship that no one's applied for. It's up in three days. Who, Whoever other teachers you've taken from, great. I'm going to get a letter from them. I'm writing you a letter. The application's going to be on your desk next time you see me. This is what you need to write for it. You need to turn it in and you have a form. So she ended up actually getting me this a full ride for the next few years um and that's like how I was able to kind of but it took me seven years to do to do my undergrad but that was kind of how I was able to stay there and also find she was um she was a professor she was a history professor who studied um 
queer history and U.S. women's history, and she was um, openly lesbian and come out to our class, and I think this was, like, kind of, like, the first time that I was, like, oh, I have this, like, little queer home and bubble in, in both, like, the history and gender studies departments for, like, the, you know, the first time in my life, so that was, like, very helpful in terms of me just knowing that, like, maybe I could be queer and maybe I could um, be a student or be, like, have a different job than at the grocery store eventually someday. So tell me about uh, some of your developing relationships and connections with queer community during during these years. Um, yeah, so I guess a lot of these years, right, when I moved to Salt Lake City, um... I had known a couple of friends, and I ended up dating this um, non-queer identified cis, cisgender man who we were together for about four years and lived together. And this was at the same time that I'm like taking these like gender studies classes, and I'm meeting this this professor um, Elizabeth Clement, who who I just spoke to you about, and really realizing that. Um, there was, you know, that, like, I was, like, dreaming every night about having sex with women. It was, like, all I could think about. Um, very much really didn't question my gender in terms of necessarily, like, my, like my body or my embodiment, but very much in terms of, like, prescribed gender roles and those not fitting. And I, But I think then I kind of thought about it as, like, it's super unfair that, like, you know, women have to dress this way or act this way. Um, I don't have to do that as a woman. Um, and also, like, also it's okay for me to be, like, realize that, like, I'm I'm queer even though I'm dating this, like, cis guy. But I think there were still tensions between us, and I was like, I have to be able to um, sleep with women. I need to be able to make out with women. I want to be with you. And we didn't have any sort of, like, ideas about, like, mm, we didn't, there were there was nobody around us or anything that I was even reading or speaking with anybody about like non-monogamy but we were sort of I mean basically I was like you're not allowed to do anything I do whatever I want and you're not invited you know which was like not a very nice way of um handling my relationship but I was <laughs> so at this point understanding this very very clearly that that was really not okay um but I was really kind of desperate for um to figure this out um and so I think but it was really I think it was really kind of like in in the academy it was like going on dates with like the person who was like the admin assistant for the gender studies department who was super queer this you know it was like way before online dating this was like 1990 like I don't know 99 2000 um and uh so yeah I think that that was kind of my first my first time and I, at the time I was I identified as, as bisexual I, think I had told my younger sister who I didn't have a lot of contact with I, I left home to go to that boarding school and she was quite young so she was um, she's 10 11 when I left and so we didn't have a lot of contact or a great relationship because my folks were really trying to be like you stay away from Yana Yana's bad they like smoke pot and they're terrible getting kicked out of schools and and so they didn't want me to be this bad influence so we didn't have a close relationship but I do remember having a phone conversation with her at some point when I was like probably around like 
19 or so when I lived in Salt Lake City and she still lived with my folks and being like, I'm bisexual. Could you kind of float that by mom and dad and see how they react? So I, you know, because I, I want them to know, but I'm, I was like a little too scared and I was like, maybe just like, you know, be like, drop it in there casually and then just gauge the reaction and call me and tell me. So she totally did this and and that like was very nice to have that distance around it and it was it was a little while later it wasn't until I think I had like my first girlfriend when I was maybe like 21 or 22 that they that I was like like you have to deal with this you know and and, uh so that was the that was maybe like the first time in terms of like you know acknowledging it to like my partner to my parents and and very much was like active in in um some kind of queer stuff on campus that was that was happening. Um, it was like the, the bi, the bi on campus. <laughs> yeah. What was queer activism like in Salt Lake City at the, in the late nineties? Um, you know, I rem- there was a lot happening in the state legislature and like the kind of early two thousands around. Um, I feel like there were big fights about like non-abstinence only education at the time both like federally from the Bush administration and then how like you so there was a lot of like a lot of like the LGBT student groups and I was like the chair that for two years of the gender studies student advisory committee so that was like my main sort of role so there was like there were a lot of conversations about how we kind of you know it was like in this way that it was like a lot of like like the queer people really taking up a lot of like their repro rights and the the sex education stuff that maybe wasn't always explicitly queer but those were some of the bigger campaigns I think the local Planned Parenthood affiliate that was like there was like some partnerships happening there and so I think people were just like you know feeding into working on these issues and obviously they're totally queer issues but it was interesting that the way that we weren't always being like and queer sex ed needs to be taught like it wasn't that you know it wasn't like we were like as queer people like we need this to be happening but it was like we need to talk about like condoms and sex and STIs and um and the fact that like not everyone is straight like that's kind of as far as I think I remember going not like and it needs to like talk about like gender identity and expression and like like non non straight sexualities like that was kind of not what I but I remember a lot of um but certainly like academically I felt like that you know the, the courses that I was in and the conversations that were being had around um you know but they were they were kind of like I think the courses that I, I felt very much like I got a background in like you know why marriage might not be like the best for for queer people in the ways that it's like constructed like co-constructed like heterosexism and racism and all of these things and then at the same time a lot of the like activism was like we need to have like some protections for queer faculty and for domestic partnerships and so there was that you know that thing that always then I think happens where you the maybe like the conversations um in the gender studies departments and the classes and a lot of the faculty that I was introduced to and the ideas around um kind of like like less you know like around essentially like you know marriage marriage politics being totally different from then I'm seeing the same people at the rally that it's like, you know, we need we need a domestic partnership um, 
registry at the city level in Utah, which is, like, something that I ended up, like, later working on. So there's this, like, big disconnect with, like, okay, well, this is, like, what we're studying, and now I'm, like, graduating, and I'm, like, decided that, like, this is, like, what I'm dedicating my life to both, like, academically as an act and as an activist, and then I'm, like, you're kind of, like, spit out into, like, the only sort of existing institutions where you can get internships or jobs, and they're all kind of, like, funneled into um, marriage movement stuff at that time. And so that was, that, that felt like this, like, weird disconnect but I was also able to be like okay well practically speaking whatever you know (laughs) but yeah so uh you stayed in Salt Lake City for a time after you got out of college I did um I did I I worked at um I had this I had a job which I was completely not qualified to do but I worked I like led a a unit on a residential like lockdown treatment center for that had a wing of um, juvenile female sex offenders and because I had the gender studies degree they were like cool like you can like run these like mental health groups and under the direction of the therapist who's like never around and, like I didn't do it so that was a kind of a intense job and I did that for a little while and then you know I there was part of me that sort of felt at that point my life was there um, I sort of I, then I got a, a job working for for Planned Parenthood in Utah, um, which was, which was interesting. And then I got a job working, I became the communications director for the LGBT, the Utah Pride Center, which is like the LGBT community center for the entire state, even though it's in Salt Lake City. And so at that time there was a bill, we worked a lot on a bill that was around anti-bullying that explicitly said sexual orientation. And I don't remember if it said gender identity in, in K through 12 schools in Utah that was having a really hard time being pushed through and then this domestic this domestic partnership registry um that um after the after the whole Utah was one of the the, the places that passed a uh anti-marriage amendment as well so there was a lot of fighting around you know a lot of like work around that so I ended up feeling like I wanted to do this work in a place where I yeah where I felt like it was like I was like you know why I go to say, I, you know, I had like dreams of like all, a lot of friends that have like gone to San Francisco or gone to Portland because that was like the closer like queer places from to Salt Lake City. And I was like, I should just, there's part of me that like really wants to do that. And there's part of me that feels like I'm like, whatever, that like lucky to have a job, um, lucky to be, you know, there's like four queer jobs in Utah and I have one of them, um, you know, and um, that this is like a place that really needs that work. And so there was a lot of work about um, ex-gay, I'm, I'm sorry, not ex-gay, ex-Mormon, ex-Mormon gay folks or, or Mormon identified still, like, so groups like Affirmation who are for, um, were for queer Mormons who still identified as Mormon but were, like, maybe not excommunicated for the church and also folks who had left the Mormon church and needed support around that because they were queer. A lot of uh, we didn't have an overnight bed, but we had like a youth drop-in center that provided a ton of services for a lot of Mormon um, teens who had been kicked out for coming out um, and um, put on a bunch of stuff. We put on like this really, really huge like queer prom event every year. These folks weren't allowed to take um, like same, same gender-ish partners to, to their two proms and so this like the, I think the, you know the year that I was there was like maybe like 2006 or something it was like you know seven eight hundred 
people coming to these things. And so there was like this massive, this massive community. And, and so I kind of, I felt like I had my little queer bubble there. And, um, but it felt, it, you know, it always felt, it always felt like, you know, Utah never felt super, um, like totally nourishing for me either, I don't think. Yeah. So you worked a series of these nonprofit social justice jobs in reproductive health and in, uh, uh, social services and in LGBT issues. Mm -hmm. And like none of them paid, so I was still, even after I graduated, I was still working to get my union benefits at the part-time at the grocery store. I was lucky enough that I could work. I think the contract there was, it was like a UFCW contract and I wasn't part of like the the contract had happened way before I got there, but it was like we could work 22 hours a week and still have union benefits. And so I really needed this at this point, especially not being on, you know, on being on my folks. Um, and so most of the time that I had these two jobs at the Planned Parenthood and at the Utah Pride Center, I was at the cashiering as well. So it was this really weird thing where I was like this. I was the became the I got this internship, like PR communications internship there three weeks later maybe it was super short into it the executive director was like I really hate doing press I don't want to do it media if you're writing a press release and it's like coming from our communications intern like they're not going to respond to you so you just put you just put communications director and your name on it and like you're smart you can handle this and I was like it was you know it helped me in terms of like being able to say like I was a communications director and led some kind of big things but like I no idea what I was doing and I was like an intern so but anyway I ended up like because of this my boss she didn't really want to do as much tv and so she was like you do it like you're young you're like the face of the you like say the thing when they come over and they're like what do you think about the they were calling it the mutual commitment registry because the amendment in Utah said you couldn't have any marriage-like benefits for so they couldn't say domestic partnership registry when the state said that they wouldn't, you know. So so then they were calling it the mayor in Utah at the time, the mayor in Salt Lake City at the time, who was, who was um, not Republican. It was, you know, sort of this little island of blue in a sea of red is, is with a lot of the country. I think, you know, they're like, great, well, then we'll just call it the mutual commitment registry. So they'd be like, Yana, what do you... So I was like the gay person on TV for the state. So I was like always on like local news there and ended up breaking one story nationally. But then I would like go to the like my job that I'd had for like a million years. I think I was at that grocery store. It was the longest job I've still ever had. It was like I worked there for like almost eight years. And they would be like... Like, you know, like the customers like super knew me because I've been there for like, you know, like a lifetime at that point in my like, early, you know, early mid mid 20s. And they would just be like, oh, we just like saw you. You're like the director of the gay center, you know, and I'm like, no, no, I'm the, you know, and I'm like, we just saw it. They're like, well, maybe like, oh, well, well, good job. Or or I had no I had no idea. You should really get an education. You're good. And I'm like, uh, you know, just like weird <laughs> shit like that, you know, so it's like, but yeah, it was a but it was it was interesting, I think there the there's so much resistance certainly to like the both like the sort of like um to abortion which was you know something that that was always being fought and at the Planned Parenthood I worked at and also the also the LGBT rights stuff that I was working on at the Pride Center but the way that I feel like other like maybe Planned Parenthood affiliates in the south and other LGBT like organizations in other areas like the way that I think the religious extremism is I kind of experience a lot of a lot of the the LDS policies around this there are super anti but they're not um it's not like a we're gonna like protest in front of the Planned Parenthood with 
signs of fetuses or even or block entrances or it's very much like we're not funding this we're completely against this we are going to put a crisis pregnancy center right next door which happened um we are going to you know fund later you know we're going to fund like mormon mormon um you know stakes and and wards across the country like ended up funding so much of the um of prop aid in california but it's it's sort of done quietly and through dollars so i never had i remember having coming to work and having some voicemails that were like y'all are disgusting you're terrible but in general like there weren't people like protesting outside the center the lgbt center there weren't people protesting outside the planned parenthood it was this more like done quietly and through dollars and through like just like cultural understandings of this not being okay but i never felt i think you know my parents were like oh my god this my kids like the you know aren't you scared to be like so visible um, but I ended up having like way more scary things just with like people being, you know, being when you work in retail or you were and, and like you're it's a job that's like open to anyone can walk in and like super unwell people um, can walk in. There were way more, way more scary things in terms of people knowing where I worked and like I walked home and like felt like I, I felt way more unsafe actually <laughs> working, working in retail than I did at either of those places. What kind of work did most of your friends then uh, do? A lot of like restaurant. Um, yeah, mostly restaurants. It was like a lot of like food service, um, hotels, like bellhops. My the partner that I had for four years was yeah, it's like valet, bellhop. So yeah, mostly like service, service industry work. Do you think there was any sort of queer community within service industries at the time? Like, did people know each other yeah. through the work? And my, I think my work, I remember, you know, it was like this, like, we would like put, put, all of us would like put in for like pride. It was sort of like the, if like Salt Lake City has a gayberhood, the, the neighborhood called um, the avenues in which my grocery store was in was, was definitely it. And so a lot of the, there were a lot of queer people that worked at this grocery store. I think like my first girlfriend I met, she worked in the bakery department and would like, you know, make out in the employee bathroom, like, you know, all these things. And we would like, there were so many, my boss, my direct supervisor was, was a queer woman. Um, yeah. The, the, and I think that, yeah, we would have to put in for like, like Utah, like the Utah pride festival, which like we were all very excited about going to, um, like you know months in advance i remember like being like in december just because so many people wanted to go they had to like find staffing and so we would like fight about this but i also remember some like just weird things like i remember the 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 bakery manager was this lesbian woman who i had made out with at one point years before while i worked there and uh and but i also had you know had this this um cis guy partner um at the time and I remember like requesting Pride off one year and then like her going to tell my, my boss who was gay who did my schedule being like, Yana's like not really gay. Like Yana's just like wanting to be cool and like saying that <laughs> that Yana's bi and so like you shouldn't give them Pride off. You know, there was like always like, you know, who's like really, who's really gay and I think that like happens and like, you know, just like policing of other people in like a place that is like kind of repressed in some ways, you know. So, how did you end up in New York? Um, 
So I was working at the Utah Pride Center, and there was a trans student who had contacted us who went to uh, Southern Utah University about five hours south of where we were in Salt Lake City who um, who had transitioned over a summer and had been housed in the women's dorms his first year as a public university and that and was applying to live in the, the men's dorms the the second year and the school was denying him housing in both the women's and the men's dorms so he came to us and decided to he was like I you know before like figuring out lawsuit stuff he's like I actually really want to work with the school to figure out their dorm policy um, but this is he's an undergrad student probably early 20s but I, I think I just like want to like use like what can we do in order to like leverage media pressure around this and like make them look terrible for you know this is like a state school and they're denying a student housing um, and so we ended up, like, the story kind of broke nationally after it broke locally, and he and I ended up, I think, like, Star Jones had her own show, so, like, he and I, like, ended up, like, being on the Star Jones show, which was, like, totally weird. It was also weird, too. I feel like in U in New York and a lot, most places, I think I moved through the world with, like, a lot of, like, I think I'm red as white and moved through the world with a lot of white privilege and, you know, my, but I, um... I think there, like, people, I did get that, like, what are you? I'm like, half Brazilian, and part of my family in Brazil is, is Portuguese and German, so white. And then my grandfather's side of the family is from uh, a tribe in the north called Caridi. And so I have, like, um, some indigenous blood from South America. And I'm, like, you know, I have, like, dark dark hair and dark eyes. But I, there, you know, I certainly saw, I remember, like, for this, for a lot of the time, anytime I would, like, do a show that wasn't, like, local news where they were, like, would give me, like, hair and makeup, it's, like, they would always, like, they would like my hair was like short but like super curly and big and they would always like like straighten it so I like look at this video and I like have all this like makeup that like kind of makes me a little lighter and then like super like flat iron my hair and um which I feel like maybe I I feel like I'm a person who here I just I'm assumed I moved the world with like white privilege I'm assumed white um but there was kind of a little it was a little different but I um we anyway that's a different tangent I broke the story nationally and then Glad, who I'd already kind of been working with a little bit at the time, who had helped me secure this internship at the Utah Pride Center. They, they'd funded that internship, and then they had kind of given me some, you know, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. And my boss was like, well, you talk to Glad. They do media, gay media stuff. So you're going to be the director, and, you know, and they'll tell you what to do, <laughs> you know. So they end, I was in contact with them because of this. And once I broke that story nationally, they were like, this person's doing a good job, and we have a position where they, that, would be um, in charge of monitoring media um, and providing training for activists in a 12-state region. And so we think Yana needs to, like, join the national movement. So I didn't actually even apply for this job, but I was recruited. And at the, I really needed to leave Utah at the time. And so they were just like, we want you to apply for this job. We want to offer you this job. It's like a media field strategist for the southern U.S. And you've worked in, like, conservative... You've done, like, LGBT media work in conservative areas. So even though it did feel really different in Utah than the south. And so they they recruited me. I came out here, and that was, like... Um, I'd been here for maybe, like, eight months, and then that was, like, the end... The end of that was, like, the end of 2008 when, like the economy super collapsed nonprofit world. And so I had only been here. For, I didn't know a single person, like I really not one feels weird now, but I did not know. I did not know one, <laughs> one human in New York. And then I just, they were like, they actually, they didn't pay for me to like relocate or anything. I 
I was like super, you know, super poor. And I came out here. They, I think I made $38,000 a year. And then a few months later, they were just like, we're really sorry. And they laid off like eight people between on the same day, like between the, the New York and LA office. And I was, I was one of them. So then I was just like, I'm not going back to Utah. I'm, I'm here. And then just like, you know, hung out on, on unemployment in this warehouse in Williamsburg that didn't have heat for the winter and freaked out until I got a new job. <laughs> so tell me about the impact of the 2008 financial crisis on nonprofit employment and your life and the people around you. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a, you know, a few of my friends there got laid off the same day, and um, I think there just wasn't a, um, there wasn't a lot, you know, for that particular organization, there wasn't, they were like, you've done a great job, like, we'll, we'll be references for you, but there wasn't really a lot of, like, support in terms of, like, um, going forward, I think I could, like, keep my benefits for, like, two more weeks or something like this, and while I know that I did use one of the folks at GLAD for as a reference, um, it didn't, yeah, it really felt like the opportunity, because everyone was going through this, the places where I was applying really weren't in a place to hire either. And so it was like maybe like, it was like four or five months, I think. And it was very much like, um, I also felt like at a weird place too, because my my resume was all it's like University of Utah, Univ- you know, like Utah Pride Center. And then I would, you know, the couple places where I did get interviews, they would be like, I, I felt like they were just like, what, like, you know, so they're like, wow, Utah. Like, I would have no idea how to operate in New York or wouldn't be like competent or like somehow like we didn't have like the same internet or like light bulbs in Utah, you know, and so, and I also, you know, I just was, like, sort of my first time I, you know, lived in, like, Philly for four years as a kid, and, and you know, like, like, was, like, but I, I, I was my first time as an adult, like, it, it, in the, on the East Coast again in this way that was, like, you, you know, you don't have, like, the Ivy League or the whatever here, so, um, but, yeah, I, I think that it, I mean, personally, I just, yeah, I went through like a pretty difficult, like, depression period. I did. I ended up not having, ended up like renting this like totally illegal apartment and not having heat and not knowing what to do about it. Begging my parents to help me, which you know, like, lucky that they were uh, financially able to, but the relationship also was not one that always was like. And they were just like, well, then you just like come back here. You lost your job. Like, we'll buy you a plane to get back, and that's that. You know. Um, and I was like, nope, I'm, I'm, I'm staying here. Um, and, um, yeah, I, it was, I didn't feel like I, I probably, I would say in those few months, like I probably applied to like, I would say I probably put in like 30 or 40 applications a week. Like I was just being like really, I, I was desperate to stay here and I had like, no money didn't know how I was gonna like pay my power bill you know like that was like going through the roof because that I had this like little plug-in heater and like I could like I'd slept with like a like hat on and like could see my breath in my apartment and you know it was just and I was just like I'm gonna you know going to like cafes to like send out all of these applications and not knowing a bunch of people so it felt 
it felt pretty. Um, but I had a couple of friends from GLAD at this point, and they were really sweet and helpful. I remember going to a lot of, there was this, like, weird website I, that was, like, called myopenbar.com, which, like, was, like, a listing of, like, all of the, like, art gallery events or whatever that had, like, free wine at them. It would, like, just aggregate. And so I was, like, I couldn't go out with, like, you know, the couple of, like, queer friends I had at GLAD or, like, go to, you know, I would, like, go to, like, queer, uh, queer bars as much. So I had, like, one friend that, like, brought me a fl- bought me a flask and was, like, you can come out with us. You just, like, do this. And, like, another friend that was, like, here's, like, the, you know, we want to go somewhere queer, but, like, we're just going to go to the street thing together because, like, you don't have any money and this is, like, the free, so we'd, like, go to all these, like, weird street people at myopenbar.com events so we could get drunk. And, like, it was just this, you know, time that was, like, really, really challenging to stay here without a big network, but those couple of folks, like, really made it, made it possible. Um, let me know if you need a break. Yeah. Point. Why were you so invested to stay in New York? You know, I didn't I didn't really love it at this point. And I guess I should also say I came here one time while I was an undergrad as a research assistant for that professor in the history department at the University of Utah. She was working on a book on um, queer family uh, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s up until the AIDS era, and then how AIDS sort of shifted queer conceptions of, of family. Um, and so she wanted to teach me how to use archives and she needed to access the archives at the New York Public Library. And so she was like, I'm going to write a grant. You can stay with like me and my dyke friends in Park Slope. I'm going to teach you how to use the archives. And um, one summer wrote a grant for me. So we spent like a couple of months here together. So I had been in New York when I was maybe like 20, 21. So I had been here before to do that work. I didn't really know, but I, I had, you know, I was like, ah, I've been to New York. I don't love New York. I'm going to take this glad job because I need to get out of here. But once I got here, yeah, I think I still didn't love it, but I knew that I, I knew that like the people that I met that were like doing really cool work, like that it was just, yeah, a place where people were, thinking of things and doing things at this really rapid pace that I'd never experienced and that I would like grow a lot and then I would like maybe finally get to date more of the people who I wanted to date and I was like having a really hard time kind of like breaking into queer community and like just like you know trying to figure out how to write like Craigslist ads that like the cool queer people would answer you know and like that was like a lot of that was like kind of like my queer my queer dating life um you know, dating coworkers from, from the, you know, the one, the one gay job that I had here, but also like, you know, meeting the friends that I met at GLAD were also the ones that we were like really resisting. We're like, I shouldn't be working on like marriage politics because my region is in the South and there's like a ton of, there's like three trans women killed this week in Tennessee. And like, you're trying to make me do like prop eight calls and like this is a not my, you know, there's a California region person and supposedly I work in the Southern region and be like, I'm trying to work with reporters to like not misgender everyone in there, you know. And so there was, I think there were some of us within, you know, I think certainly, which is the case of a lot of these institutions where like the staff is a lot, this on the ground staff is like a lot more radical than the leadership or the board. And so we were kind of, you know, meeting folks that were like, we need to make a like trans guide for like reporting about like crime and like a lot of crime stories that would come out that were like, you know, he was dressed as a woman to rob the Seven Eleven, um, and like you're like this person is trans and needs food. You know, like and and so, 
you know, I think I was I was being kind of introduced to people who were like kind of knew how to do. Like in Utah, I was like, we were already the most radical thing, like the the mutual commitment registry, and and I was feeling frustrated that like that was still really sort of in conflict with a lot of the kind of queer theory ideas that I had been introduced to in 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 college in my undergrad, and then coming to New York, it felt like okay, these are like the more gay ink things and there's like all these like disgusting ways that I'm really not agreeing with what's happening, but there's also, and like, and I always, and before I thought they were like so far ahead of like where the Utah Pride Center was, but then also meeting people within those organizations that really knew how to be like, call them on their stuff and really help them be, um, like look at the intersections of like racial justice and queer justice and economic justice and queer justice. And, you know, I think a lot of us were really critical of like, oh, we're like at this time glad had this like Republican president. And, you know, we would be super critical of like, oh, we're like his like $300 car that like he got to go to like some like Hamptons fundraising event that just like sat there for three hours and like build and then like took him back to the city. And we're like, what the fuck? Like, why aren't we, um, why aren't we like dumping this money into, um, and, you know, at the time there was a, they had fellows, not even staff working on, on trans inclusivity, but the fellows like were not even paid like the little tiny bit that we were paid. And there, none of the, the, um, um, there was, and I guess there was another, there's another trans staff person who she worked on, um, API media and communities, but the health insurance policies there also were not trans inclusive. And I mean, this is like very like I think standard of the time, but it also felt really, so we were kind of doing stuff like internally to like criticize and like call attention to the fact that like, you're like not paying trans people, you're making trans people work on trans things and then you're not giving them trans healthcare. Like, so I, I felt really like energized by, by that. And I just knew that I needed to keep meeting people like those coworkers that we could like work together on on these kinds of things. And I was very lucky that my direct supervisor at GLAAD had mostly worked for living wage campaigns and for unions before this. And so um, I also was like really thinking about, um, you know, economic justice and queerness at that time, even though he was like really, I think his hands were tied and he was super frustrated about the way that like economic justice was not being addressed within within GLAAD and in a meaningful way at that time, in a programmatic way, in an even, like, individual way. Like, it was just, that was, like, not the, it was, like, we need to, like, fundraise for, for with all of these, like, rich donors and have these, like, super fancy, like, GLAAD Media Awards events because, like, we just are losing all of our foundation funding because of the crisis. And where were you at with your own <clears throat> gender at this time? Um, so at this time, I was... Um, still very much like female identified and not really, um, I don't know. I think I just always felt that like straight women knew this thing or had this thing that was like really different for me that I could never figure out. And I was like never able to like really be good at that or even enjoy that when I, as much as I desperately wanted to when I was younger. And then in like queer circles I always felt like I wasn't like maybe like like whatever that you know that message was like Yana's not really a dyke you know that my this old coworker at the grocery store had said that, I, that there was also something about like like lesbian culture that 
I wasn't really that or it wasn't really um, doing that right or doing that well or even seen by like I seen by others and I feel like I experimented with like you know there was like like there were like some like super femme years was like always like hairy armpits hairy legs like long hair dresses lipstick like that sort of look that I was like and not I don't feel like I was like not legible as queer like I don't feel like queer people weren't like you're not queer and I felt like I could I feel like I knew what to do with my outfits and body hair to be red um as queer but I didn't feel I just didn't I don't know whatever it was and it's very hard to sort of like pinpoint that like what piece doesn't feel totally right and I didn't feel like um you know I guess like dating uh, you know this time I was like dating cis women um I was not not dating but sleeping with cis men um and and sleeping with and dating trans men and mm, just like like that feeling like it was like working better than anything that like I had really experienced in Utah but then having a lot of um really understanding maybe for the first time in my like late 20s of like that I think when I was like 20 or 21 I went to three different gynecologists in Utah to try to get a hysterectomy um I didn't want to I didn't I've never felt like I it's like I don't feel male but I feel in the sense that like I just don't even have those internal parts I've always had extreme dysphoria about like just internal repress stuff and like that's like my body it's not even possible for my body to carry a baby um but I, I, that's not true because I had a regular cycle for many years but I just really need in you know in Utah they were like I think super they're like there's no doctor that's going to do this for you there's nothing wrong there and then starting developing some 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 physical issues which I kind of now sort of understand is like so many people are like ex like develop I feel like cyst and endometriosis and all of these things when you're like really have a hard time even identifying with that part. So starting to realize like some of that as like gender dysphoria uh, a little bit later and then, you know, trying to figure out um, that like, because this has been such a like, like trying to figure out hormones that would work that were not just like, you know, you know like trying in my early, like 19, 20, 21, trying to take birth control pills and being like most of the sex I have isn't even the kind of sex that I need it for contraception and that also these like hormones make me make my body feel more feminine which I never really liked but I didn't think that it was like because of anything else I was just like I don't want bigger chest I don't want and so yeah it took it took me a while I think to fit to kind of read to understand some of that like under the rubric of like um and then to be like oh like I've always been like a really attracted to like small chests or like flat chests and like I would actually really really like this for myself and it took me a while to be like oh I, I don't necessarily need more more like secondary masculine sex characteristics but I need less less female ones and so um so I ended up you know working with a um a physician uh an NP um who is who's also trans who's she's done you know, more work than anybody I know on like on non-binary HRT um, and working with her to do a, a pretty like, ex, you know, non sort of like off-label use of a, um, of a, 
a, a hormone called danacrin um, or danazole too um, that is a that is testosterone but it has a as steroid that it's synthesized with that suppresses secondary sex characteristics so it's an androgen that will stop your cycle not using like progesterone or estrogen but also um, won't cause um, so I was you know that that's only FDA approved for a certain amount of months and it's like used for something else it's not like they're you know pharmaceutical companies or doctors being like how can we like figure out how like assigned female at birth gender queer people can like not have periods but like through you know like not use like estrogen and progesterone so it's like you know that's not but ended up being on this for a couple of years but unfortunately that's really bad for bone density so this physician was like really great about you know being like you need to get bone scans and it turns out that after two years on this hormone I developed um, osteopenia it's like pre-osteoporosis and so I needed to change that so now I'm doing this other like weirdo like I've been on like a tea shot with a really low dose of progesterone mixed for the last year. Um, so trying to figure out, you know, how I can, um, you know, how I can do what I need to do, but that's going to be, that's also this temporary thing that I, at some point, like no matter how little tea you're on, um, you know, there's some things that I want from tea that I really enjoy and some things that I don't. And so like, you know, I figure I can, if, if my gender stays feeling kind of the same that I won't want, like that I won't want to have like, a, you know, a total beard and a couple that I probably have like maybe one more year on this low dose of tea, then, then I have to like figure something else out again. Um, so yeah, it's been kind of a, you know, dealing with the, dealing with that medically and dealing with that, um, uh, has been really, really nice to be able to like have like a kind of a trans framework to be able to, to do that in and to, to also under like, understand and also be able to advocate for myself to have like my Medicaid cover <laughs> cover the, the the hormones that I need um and um when I was able to this this last May um which was was not covered um but I ended up and caused a huge rift in my family was able to get was able to get top surgery as well um which I'm happy to share a bit about if that's sure yeah absolutely um when I finally realized I wanted top surgery when I kind of kind of had this understanding of like the dysphoria that I was feeling not necessarily being out of necessarily of wanting to present male or move through the world as a man but also like really really excited that I like even kind of like took so long to even just be like this is something you can have and do and like give yourself permission to do so I, I tried to get surgery the first time from a I contacted a, a acquaintance who I knew that worked at Callan Lord who had had success um, getting a, a, a like quote unquote breast reduction covered for for back pain through insurance and but they're also a gender queer like assigned female at birth gender queer person who went to a person in New York because there's not like really anyone great in New York doing doing top surgery for trans folks um, for for folks who are um, who are getting mastectomies and so um, I was like, oh, well, if this person who's like also genderqueer found this person to like work with their gender and figure out how to build their insurance for this, I will take that wreck and go to that person. Um, worked with my therapist to get a letter saying that, um, and then they refused to bill my insurance company, even though I was working for the RWDSU at this point. Um, and the policy there, um, says that it includes 
um, says it includes care for um, for gender identity disorder, but they won't give you, they will not provide you the criteria for the diagnosis or the or the procedure codes that are covered under that diagnosis. They just make the doctor bill and then they will determine, you know, they'll pre-approve or not pre-approve, but they won't share that criteria. They wouldn't share that criteria with me at that point. And so I said, well, my policy says that they cover this, so I'm asking you to bill them. I didn't qualify the, like, ratio of, like, what your breasts need to be to the rest of your body is, like, determined for a, to, to qualify for back pain for, um, for, for a reduction. I didn't qualify for that, and it's this really kind of fat phobic awful rubric that that they that they do um for that so I didn't qualify for that so I was like well I'd like you to bill my insurance under gender you know you're making me get a letter from my therapist saying I'm trans you're making me be trans then bill my insurance for me being trans um and they refused to bill my insurance um my surgery date was actually two days before the directive came down from the New York State Governor Cuomo about insurance companies needing to cover this and so I said well actually now it's the law you actually that my insurance actually has to cover um some procedures and so I'm requesting that you bill them and they refused um as a doctor at NYU so I called um I called a lawyer who works on trans health issues and they were like actually it's not illegal for a for a physician to refuse to bill an insurance it would could be maybe illegal for your insurance but if they're not even they're like you're not to work with a physician who won't act to work with a surgeon who won't refuse to bill insurance for a procedure that they're calling cosmetic and they're doing it they was doing it at nyu's they were like also your or is a cosmetic or so procedures by definition can't be billed as medical if they're done in a cosmetic or there's like an even separate like facility so that was that was that was their reason for refusing to bill my insurance and so i ended up having even though that directive came down two days before my surgery date my family and i were no longer speaking because of this i couldn't go home for thanksgiving because of this they were like you're you're sick this is you're being influenced by your trans friends you're much more a follower than a leader was like what my dad wrote um and so I um but I so I ended up being I was like I'm actually if my insurance covers this I'm gonna make them do it like I'm not so I canceled my surgery date like one or two days before like thankfully got you know didn't have to like financially suffer because of this um and um and then started again on on figuring on figuring this out and then in the interim um my dad died very um without was like he was diagnosed with cancer everywhere and two weeks later he died so it was like really abruptly in terms of like time but in this my dad ended up leaving me a little bit of money in an ira and so then i was like i'm gonna you know, there's a part of me that was like, you were so terrible about this to me. And like, now, now you get to pay for it. Now you get to actually pay for this. And I was like, and now I sort of think of it a little different. I'm like, it's really cool that like my dad is no longer here, like got to be a part of like giving me this present, whether or not he would have been okay with it. But like, I think at first that was just like, my daddy paid for my titty job. You know, and I was like, okay, like, actually, that's not, not exactly how I want to be thinking about this. But I ended up being able to use, um, use that, the that money that he gave me to pay for it out of pocket with a, a person, a surgeon in Colorado who specializes in um, kind of like non non binary top surgery in which he 
has a procedure where he retains, I think the only reason it's whatever, like non, non-binary is that, um, for people who are like really invested in retaining, um, their nipple sensation. And so, um, his name is uh, Dr. Paul Steinwald and he, his procedure retains like the, keeps the pedicle, I believe is what it's called, attached, which is like all of the the pieces where all the nerves like run through your nipple and so is able to do the like con the like whatever like male what are they call like male contouring with while retaining with retaining um leaving that part attached so it retains nipple sensation so that was super important to me and also that he you know he's one of those folks that doesn't like you need to be like presenting male and moving but it was very weird I like always said my pronouns there and like I really don't identify like very I was like really don't identify as a woman um you know, for a few years at that point, it was like clear about this, but like, you know, I just, the way that my, I read physically is people always assume, um, she, and so, but it just felt weird in this like clinic that was like very much trans, you know, all of the, all of the staff were like, she, she, you know, which is like, I'm, I, you know, I'm like, yeah, y'all need to pull this together for, for folks who might be more, more upset about this you know, and like, understandably so. Um, but I was like, you're, you're here to like, cut these things off. And that's what is happening. So So you've shared about your uh, non-binary physical changes. Uh, Did this go along with changes in your language or identity or how you talked about yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that I, I think that I, um, before I had surgery and probably right around the time that I was like doing like like HRT stuff was like using um, asking people to use like they their pronouns for me I haven't changed my name at all um, but I was really kind of like thinking about I was like I, I guess I just before I just sort of thought that like I was not trans and not genderqueer but that I just like didn't want to have like female repro stuff and I didn't want to have a chest and I didn't want to be read as um as lesbian um even though you know many of the people who I, I've dated identify as women but many of the people I've dated don't so I just I, I think I don't know what exactly cl- I mean I think it was just very much like having other people around me who's who's hearing about them talk about their experience you know it was like just that super basic like when there are other people around you that have like language for this that you see some of your feelings about your body and the way that other people understand you move being like oh like this is totally a thing that like we've made up because it's useful and all of this is made up right like like trans is like made up and it's totally real and it's totally a thing that we've made and built and like what it means and what it means for us and so realizing that like this could be a like shifting from this like thing where it's like I'm like really want to like like have trans people's backs because like they're my friends and my partners and I like see how like awful it is for them at the doctor and at the bathroom and at school and blah, blah, blah to like, oh. So I think there was this when you're, at least for me, when when I was just always in this like, I want to like support these people in my life to like, oh, I I am this person in my life. It took us, it really took it. And I think maybe as a person who's done a bunch of like 
or labor organizing work and LGBT organizing work that it's like there's this weird thing where it's like I'm like doing this for everybody else or something like that weird like it's like I, I don't want to see myself in some ways as like people who are like oppressed or like when I was like taking like feminist theory classes in college it was like you know sexism is this like terrible thing that is happening to all these other women but not me you know and like I get it and I'm like liberated because I'm going to this class and like I work for Planned Parenthood and like this instead of being like and I think it's maybe just a, like an unwillingness to identify with like the ways that this stuff really hurts us and so I think I it's been many times in my life that I've like oh like sexism is a thing that happens to me too and like like being denied the ability to get have my surgery covered or being denied the ability to have like hormones covered and like the oh the danazol situation was like a hot mess too because I wasn't able to get it covered after my my um physician who's like this like amazing like trans woman NP who's like knows how to do every appeal in the book and every off-label use and every like other diagnosis code and is like very willing to do this for people as like an activist and you know like for for trans healthcare is like I'm just not getting to, so then I'm like going to Brazil and like buying them there because it's you know the Danazol is like it's like $530 a month for me um and every insurance that I've had from the insurance at, um has not covered it so then I've was like going to Brazil you know I was like spent a summer there like all you know my mom's the only person who came here so the rest of my family's there um and you know buying like a year's worth of hormones that are still super you know it's like a thousand bucks for a year's worth but that's way cheaper than a thousand bucks gets me two months here flying them back going through customs without a prescription you know because i'm buying it without a prescription there which is like also not legal but you're able to do it and like you know and then like calling family members there and being like i need you to send me more you know and so like that was like how i was getting my hormones until i switched to this testosterone progesterone combo so um, yeah, but I, I think I, going through a lot of that stuff, being like, okay, I am, like, importing hormones from, like, the other country of which I'm a citizen. I'm, like, flying shit back and forth through customs. I'm, like, being denied to, with a surgeon to even bill my fucking insurance who's supposed to cover it. Like, okay, I guess I'm kind of trans. Like, this is what trans people go through. And then, it, but it, it, like, it's, I was... As in as much as I was like super in this community, both like academically and socially and like professionally, it really took me like a while to be like, oh, okay. Like, I guess I'm like non-binary, gender, queer, trans spectrum human. <laughs> How did you end up at RWDSU? Um, the my boss who worked at who who worked at Glad at the time. Um, knew that I was job hunting again and had been the communications director there. He was on his way out, um, but let me know that one of the, the new alt-labor projects that was like under this union uh, was looking for a communications person and let me know that the person who was running that was queer and at the same time the president of the RWDSU, Stuart Applebaum, also had just come out as gay himself um, and think so there was like some sort of like renewed investment not only in figuring out you know how do we organize and base build in an industry that has like 
4% union density, but also how do we like really include queer people? Because there were like people with like, that understood the ways that like queerness and, and, um, and employment were, were intersecting, so. Tell me uh, broadly what RWDSU is about uh, for folks who haven't heard of it. Sure, so RWDSU stands for the Retail Wholesale Department Store Union. Um, it's actually under the, the UFCW um, umbrella now, which is um, coincidentally the union that had the awesome contract at the grocery store in Utah that I worked at, which you know made it possible for me to work these other jobs and go to school and have health insurance. Um, so, um, but essentially they represent um, they represent workers in mostly in the retail sector, but um, other sectors, um, and and work for. Um, so a lot of the, yeah, I guess like the really bigger, older department stores here in New York City. So the Macy's on 34th Street, the, the Bloomingdale's on 3rd Avenue. Um, and um, and then the Retail Action Project is kind of a alt-labor project that stems from this union. And um, it is basically, you know, the concept was there's so little union density, getting contracts is super hard, organizing uh, in, in an industry, you know, with, with 4% and all, with 4% density and also in an industry that um, a lot of the workers like don't identify necessarily as like this is like their career or like long term job, even though there are definitely like careers in retail. So I think thinking about like how we make those jobs like jobs that people can live off of and that can be careers um, and how do we also reach out when we know that this is an industry where there's like some really rampant wage theft happening um, specifically making undocumented workers really um, really susceptible to this and figuring out how we can at least like get you know wages back for folks who've still um, been stolen so there's like overtime violations and minimum violations and all of these things that that I think they were seeing across the board and ways that we could reach out to some of those workers experiencing that um, and really was kind of formed as like a under like a services to organizing model where we're providing some of these services um, not only some of the like like the wage the wage reclamation stuff but also um, training in order to move up industry tiers and having memberships who are members who are like oh like I worked at like Tiffany's doing like visual merch and so like I'm gonna like teach a class on this to the other members who are maybe doing stock at like a dollar store in the Bronx and like help help members move up industry tiers into the more more um well-paying retail jobs and so there's a lot of like sort of training and and services around helping folks file for when you know big stores close like getting the word out to those employees help them file for um unemployment and help them appeal those claims and then and then through a lot of those services really figure out um, how we can where there are members who will organize some stores that they're in and whenever there has been a, a chance or the ability for or interest for workers to get a contract then working with them to connect them with organizers from the RWDSU to um, to see if we can actually get contracts in place to protect those workers but RAP has been also quite successful in media campaigns and that's what I was the communications director there so running a lot of um, you know essentially sort of like public you know, organizing workers to be able to share their stories oftentimes you know like workers who are 
you know, working full time, but still live in a shelter because they can't afford rent elsewhere and are still like willing to like go on the cover of like AM New York and be like, this is like what's happening at my job. And it's like totally not okay. Um, and, um, so really training a lot of what I did was training, training workers to be able to share those stories, letting them know how to do it, connecting them with reporters and really using this as like larger, larger media campaigns where, you know, maybe, maybe we're not going to get a contract because there's not enough, there, there isn't going to be the kind of like electoral, um, not going to be a base to, to actually win in a, uh, election, but we are going to at least, um, scare the employees into like stopping, stopping the racial discrimination or stopping the, um, you know, the no raises for however many years. And, um, so, so those are some things that, that we were able to do through like some direct, some direct actions, um, through, through a lot of media campaigns, um, and, and also some wage theft claims. And, I think in terms of, you know, there were, in terms of the queer piece, both at RWDSU and RAP, um, there were, within retail and fashion worlds, I think we're already, like, there's, the, the membership base was already really, really queer. We were hearing how members who would, like, transition on the job or members who were um, openly queer and, like, not doing gender in normative ways um, were being either harassed by managers or by other employees. And so one of the big kind of wage theft campaigns that Rap took on at a store called Yellow Rat Bastard that actually ended up um, in a, ended up where, where, um, ended up in a union contract where workers got a contract, ended up including, because a couple of the the members, the workers who are organizers were queer and, and were experiencing some of this harassment from customers that managers did nothing about or from coworkers that managers did nothing about or from managers themselves ended up writing a um, sexual orientation and then the gender identity and expression um, uh, harassment and non-discrimination into the contract that they won despite the fact that New York State has, has, still hasn't passed gender. Um, these protections on a statewide level. And so that was like one way in which like the contract was able to do something that legislatively hasn't happened yet that was specific to the goals of the actual workers who were, when we were like, what, what, what is hard for you at your job? What is making this impossible? And those were, those were, you know, first and foremost, a lot of the, the concerns. So just uh, to map it out a little for listeners, so the UFCW was a union you were a part of in Utah, and uh, the RWDSU is a part of it, part of the UFCW now, mm-hmm. and then the RWDSU had a what you called an all-labor project that was the Retail Action Project, mm-hmm. uh, and then you were hired by the Retail Action Project to do media and communications work with members. Right. Right. And, you know, the, the, the Retail Action Project functions like a worker center in the sense that it is a membership-based organization. So even the workers who work in retail who don't have a contract with the RWDSU, so they're not members of the RWDSU, they are still, by saying, I want to be a member of RAP and coming to membership meetings, are, are members of RAP. And then certainly there are workers who are members of the RWDSU, you know, like our, our local, our members of the locals in in the union who also are really excited about the direct 
action that so they'll come along to and support workers who are doing a direct action at Victoria's Secret or something like this. And so there's some overlap in terms of membership, but the distinction is that, you know, they, they don't have to be um, employees of retailers who have a contract at the at, with the RW to be a RAP member. Right. That makes Which is sense. how labor unions worked in the 19th century, yeah. early 20th century. Yeah. yeah. So, and you described this campaign at Yellow Rat, at Rat Bastard that included in the contract... No discrimination based on gender identity. Gender identity, expression, and sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. So that is on the books for New York City law. Do you have a sense of why uh, including it in the contract was helpful for people? That that they could then use the union reps in order to... Um, to help them file EEOC claims if that's what they wanted to do because the enforcement at the city level is just the piece that isn't happening. And so despite um, despite the law being on the books, the areas for recourse were just really, really not sufficient and showing showing that there that all of the union members who just voted for this union, you know, have the have the queer workers' backs and are going to actually report it now, and we're going to p- report it to the union as a, as a secondary and in this case almost sort of like primary enforcement enforcement method was was really really useful. Uh, tell me a little bit more about this enforcement question. So, what what are some challenges for workers without unions around enforcement of the trans civil rights law on the book in New York City? You know, one of the things I think that we saw often was when we were, you know, we would, uh, you know, one time I worked there, we were explicitly partnering with an organization that was, um, what their membership was like, were mostly trans women of color at, who were, um, who were wanting to enter the retail industry and were helping, helping folks like develop resumes and, and develop some of these trainings that folks could go to. We partnered with um, a community college through CUNY to get certificate of customer service trainings and like build, build up resumes, build up, um, and, um, and, and work with workers to figure out where they wanted to work. And oftentimes we'd be like, Oh, like, you know, we have members who are queer who work in these stores. So we can, we're going to like connect you there. Like, you know, and this was always informal. We never had this like really fleshed out pipeline that we always really wanted to do, but um, that we would just end up kind of hitting the same barrier where, then you know we've we've got amazing members people who are trained people who are like totally qualified to do retail jobs and then um just not getting the calls back and um you know oftentimes these are huge group interview settings for mass hires at places like j crew or uniqlo um and so they're you know they're not hearing back and they're not being told explicitly like we're not hiring you because like your gender is like making us uncomfortable but that's essentially what was happening so we were just like hitting that even just like the non-discrimination and hiring piece like that was a barrier that we're gonna like keep hitting because it's a cultural one and not one that is like really like legislate like legislated easily so we also partnered with um we partnered with um Make the Road New York's project at the time when they were doing match pair testing with resumes of trans folks um, and cis folks going into, they did a bunch of different industries, but we helped them a little bit with the, um, with the retail 
piece in terms of and you know looking looking at the kinds of discrimination that that is happening that way but I would say and you know we also experimented for a time there were a lot of um, we hired usually from within so a lot of the, the rap organizers had been rap members before and had been like leaders on campaigns in their store so they were a couple of this, this was not um, my case but this was the case for a few of the organizers there who when I came were members and then and then um, and then became organizers paid by rap and the RW who were queer and who were um, starting putting together actually like a queer member caucus to address spe issues specific to queer people at work. But um, a lot of the, the, you know, the media piece that we did would be about like talking about would be like partnering with Queers for Economic Justice at the time to talk about um, to talk about being queer in the service industry and those sorts of um, those sorts of particular challenges folks are facing. Um, you know, whether that's around, like, being trans and then also policing what dressing rooms that customers who are trans come in and use and, you know, everything from, from that to, like, not covering, um, not cover, you know, healthcare not covering um, trans care or, like, what to do when, like, your paycheck with HR says your legal name on it and you haven't been able to change it to the name that you use and so um try to work with work with members also in the individual level for all of these types of things as well do you have a sense of uh what the factors were that led retail action project to take on trans and queer issues in the workplace perhaps more so than many other labor organizations um You know, I think I think part of it was having a union president who who was invested in looking at the intersection of like sexuality and gender and labor. I think part of it was also having a the the um, Carrie Gleason who's who's um, really conceptualized of the need for a membership-based organization for retail workers who don't have a union contract since that's the by far and large the majority of retail workers in New York City um, and and nationally um, and so so all of these um, I think it was it was both from the top and then also from just the members who are working in that industry um, coming and having meetings and because I think they were they were able to to see that a lot of the a lot of the folks running the meetings were queer that they were able to feel comfortable talking about the queer the issues that they're facing as like queer and trans people um, in retail and then and and knowing that like there's like already the willingness to address some of that and I I do think that we could like while I was there we still had like two separate single stall bathrooms that had like gendered signs on it which we totally changed while I was there but you know we were we were also in the still you know I think in the process of growing and I think that the um that there was a lot more that's that very much could be could be done and I think you know part of the like figuring out like kind of like hiring hiring pipeline stuff might be one of the only ways that we're I think we can really fix and that you know is never like formal at all um but that might be one of the like ways to fix some of the discrimination at hiring and also discrimination in like you know if somebody's like maybe also getting fired or just feeling super uncomfortable like transitioning while they're 
at a job and like being like, oh, like here's like a couple other places that we know that are hiring, that have hired trans people and that are like, they're hiring managers queer. So like, we're going to send you there, but it's these like informal, like queer trans networks that really are, are in play. I, I have the impression that a lot more queer and trans people are working in New York City service and retail industries than some other industries in mm-hmm. the city. Do you did you all ever observe that or have any sort of a take on that? I mean, sort of. I mean, we would we would talk a lot about the way that like the fashion industry and the retail industry, especially in New York, that like hosts Fashion Week, that it is an industry that really uh, that attracts a lot of queer people and in a lot of ways like celebrates uses queer models uses like um but there's i think a lot of the you know the frustration that we would run into is like in an industry that where a lot of like the imagery and a lot of the advertising um is really um it's like you know it's they're we're using like um gender nonconformity or using androgyny or um, using transition or using um, using people's sexualities that are like legibly non-straight to sell products but then at the very you know at the level of like the stock worker or the cashier or um, the salesperson are that like that's not actually like reflected there in a way that is always and like sometimes it's like yeah we're like super happy to like hire the like cute gay boy who's gonna be like you know, I know all about all this makeup and like, you can like, well, you know, like help you buy it. Um, that that's unfortunately the discrimination is, is, is still really, really rampant. And especially for people who are, whose gender is just like really not, not, um, not normative appearing. Interesting. So that was sort of, I mean, maybe kind of as far as like, you know, I think that there was a, there was a time, um, that I think there was one, there was like one summer that there was like JC Penney ran a Mother's Day ad featuring lesbian couples as moms and Ellen was like their spokesperson. And then, then for Father's Day, like the month after had gay male couples like in their catalog and their campaign, whatever their ad campaign for the season. And, um, and Glad at the time was like, we like celebrate. And you know, JCPenney was under target from the like Christian right for being um, accepting of like and re- representing queer people in this positive way. And so Glad came up with a statement that was like, we like super support JCPenney for doing this. Like they're like under attack from like whatever one million Christian mom situations. And um, this was like really the same month that JCPenney laid off every single worker who well I'm sorry I'm sorry changed every single worker who was not management to part-time and so there were no more guaranteed hours for anyone part-time they weren't defining it as like 20 hours you weren't even you could have five hours and still be you could have three hours a week and still be a JCPenney employee that's part-time so we're like this actually hurts like queer and trans people way more than you paying a couple of like queer models or doing this representation so like then rap had to like come out with a statement and be like you know while JCPenney supports queer families, um, like gay and lesbian families, um, you're actually hurting all of their gay, lesbian, and trans workers who are at more risk of, like, employment discrimination and, like, and you're not guaranteeing them ways to support their queer families that you support, supposedly. So, so we had to, you know, that was sort of, like, the, you know, when, like, when, like, economic justice and, like, sort of, like, 
large scale queer, you know, LGBT like rights politics, you know, clash a little bit. So um, I think that similar time, the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force gave a their the award that they give to employers um, a an award at their creating change conference for having inclusive trans uh, for for including um, trans care in the benefits that they give part-time employees this was office max at the time they were like one of the like the third or fourth like lowest paid retailer in the company and um, most of their workers are part-time so if you're part-time you don't even and you're trans you don't even actually get those trans benefits so like i wonder actually like how many like trans managers which are like mostly the only people that are full-time who qualify for health insurance this is actually this is actually covering and so we had to be like hey we'd like to work with you to like make sure that like um we're celebrating folks who actually like are paying their workers and giving them guaranteed hours and are making it so folks have enough hours to actually get because when when ACA when the employer responsibility portion of the Affordable Health Care Act rolled out we also just saw this massive decline and you know people were having their retailers were capping part-time workers hours at 29 because 30 hours a week was where the employer responsibility portion kicked in and so um, for for queer and trans people who obviously have like harder time accessing health care in the first place it's like leaving that many more people um, uninsured so not that that was like bad but that that was like you know really being strategic about you know knowing how retailers are strategic about working around these ways of like giving so it's like cool you can say you have like trans inclusive health care but like if you're cutting everybody's hours to keep them under what they get then actually like no thanks you know do you remember any particular conversations uh, with LGBT group groups that were less clued in around these class and employment issues? You know, I, th I remember reaching out, you know, Carrie and I would see this stuff and we would reach out and like sometimes I would have like people who I knew there just from like having, you know, having worked in the LGBT movement for years before I started working at RAP and, and being like, hey, like we would like super love to meet with you about the ways that we can make sure that economic justice is included in the work that you do and I, I don't want to like just be like and no one ever wrote us back and we were so awesome and they were terrible you know but that uh, we were you know we, it, it did feel like we weren't we weren't actually able to sit down and have like um dedicate yeah we were never able to like actually like formalize partnerships or even kind of like informalize them so we were like informing each other about each other's work so we would like reach out and like explain what was happening and and like offer to meet and um so yeah that's but i think that you know and that we were able to work with queers for economic justice often like our members would like our members spoke at many of their events our members marched with their members um for pride our members um, who were really queer, were so excited to be able to do we, a lot of the times, you know, the queer, the queer members would be like, you know, we want to do stuff like this. And we'd be like, they're awesome. Go hang out with them. They're doing stuff like this. And so there was like some, there was like some sharing of like resources and memberships. And, you know, for that was like kind of one of the only explicitly queer groups that, um, yeah, but our, our members were, you know, I guess we, we did also work a little bit with them, uh, with the stop and frisk on the stop and frisk campaign a little bit, um, which was like, I guess another place where like, you know, partnership around racial justice issues was, you know, formalized a bit. And so there were, there were some pieces where this happened, but it was really, it was, it was challenging to do the, um, the explicitly economic justice piece. 
did you all have uh, connections with other LGBT uh, people in the labor movement? Yeah, yeah. So, so we connections with um, the Pride at Work folks, and um, were um, definitely the definitely there were there are also I think a couple of like locals that had queer like queer chapters that that worked in, but that was more within the RWDSU and and less with rap but certainly you know the initiatives that like the that were coming like top down from the UFCW around um sexual orientation and gender identity we would you know distribute but um you know I think that this was a when you don't have locals and you just have you know our rap meetings were like you know this person who you know worked for like you know 10 years at Saks and then a person who is working at like um, you know, a, like one shoe store, um, and it's like all undocumented workers who are working like, you know, like 50, 60 hours a week and then like paid like a flat fee all week and then just being told like, this is what you get. Cause like you're undocumented and like, well, you know, turn you in if you don't do this. Um, and so it was very much like, you know, base building when you've got, um, folks that have really different concerns and are really different sort of industry tiers and in different shops, like different physical locations. But even workers that were in the same physical location, the way that the part-timing has like broken everybody up was really hard. So it's hard for queer people to meet other queer people. It's, and it makes it organized, like it makes like, it's like we'd be like, okay, like who are all your coworkers? They're like, well, I don't know 90% of them. So like, you know, Uniqlo will come to New York instead of offering like 500 full-time jobs it's like we're going to get a tax break for creating 2,000 jobs but they're all going to be super part-time your schedules are all over the place you work 10 hours a week and you never meet everybody so how do you get everyone together to be like like hey friend I know you're pissed too like let's you know let's have a meeting so I think the the fractioning of all of this makes it really hard for not only queer and trans people to come together but for everyone to like to organize so uh, it's different than in the like the way the locals are really able to feed like LGBT, even you know whether any sort of like issue or identity-based organizing, a lot a lot easier. So I know you uh, need to head out. Are there any closing words or comments that you'd like to include? If there's anything you want to ask me specifically about, I don't. Yeah. There's so much I want to ask <laughs> about, but I want to give you a chance to close uh, in whatever way you'd like. Um. Yeah, I think I'm just I'm I'm happy, I'm grateful that um, this work is being done in order to capture stories of people who are trans and working and in New York City from here coming from here from Utah all of the places and um, yeah I feel um, I feel really I feel really excited about. Um, Ah, that's the potentials for this for this project. Thank you so much. Yeah. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, you too.